Well, I am grateful for the opportunities that we have as a church. And I'm also aware that the busier we get as a church, the more we do as a church, the greater danger we face as a church. It may seem odd because so much of what we want to do is under this one central mission, right? We want to be a church that celebrates the gospel. We want to be a church that lives out the gospel. We want to be a church that proclaims the gospel to a world that desperately needs to know it. And it seems like everything that we add to our calendar ought to really advance that mission. But just like any good medicine, there's usually always a side effect of the stuff that we put on our calendars. And one of the main side effects is that the more we do, the more impressive we think we are. It's kind of odd, isn't it? When you really size up the impact of a small group of people like us, especially when you think about how many people live in Olmstead Falls, Olmstead Township, into the greater region of Cleveland, and then you figure, you know, kind of where Cleveland ranks nationally. It doesn't take too long to be unimpressed by what we're doing, right, numerically speaking. But it doesn't matter. The more we do, the more impressed we are. The more we do, the more in danger we are of thinking that we're impressing God. And I don't know why that is. But that question, the, the, the sense of trying to live with this balance between the God who has done everything for us calls us to participate in what he's doing. That tension that we live in between receiving a gospel of grace and yet trying to be impressive in the kingdom of God, that's something that it feels like will just always be with us. I wish this sermon would purge it from our psyche. I wish that when we were done from now, that when we all kind of finished, we'd be able to say, we've heard God's word. We will never, ever do that again. And I just don't think that's the case. We can see our disadvantages historically. We can wish we were with Jesus. We can sometimes struggle with faith and ask, wouldn't it be easier if we were with Jesus, wouldn't it be easier if we kicked Darren off the stage and Jesus was right here to share with us? And I'd say on one hand, absolutely, except for this story. Now, let's just remember what's been going on, all right? We read this in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and then those who followed we're afraid. Now, Keith and I were thinking through songs for this week, and that was the question he asked right out of the gate. Why are they afraid and why are they amazed? Like, we already know why some of them are amazed, right? It's that because Jesus has been taking the kingdom that the Pharisees and other religious leaders of the day were building so that the rich, powerful, mature, and educated were at the top, the poor, young, illiterate, and, and just sort of disadvantaged were at the bottom, and he's essentially been flipping that over on its head for about three chapters now. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, we have seen over and over things that amazed the disciples. That's maybe part of why they were amazed. But part of why they were afraid is that the central locus of the power that Jesus has been attacking is the city of Jerusalem. 
And so for this entire sermon, what you can kind of envision is a group of people going, it says, on the road up to Jerusalem. Now, if we try to think in terms of maps, you know that they've been in the north and they're heading south. And so up might not work if you're trying to think of a compass, but don't think of a compass. That's not the way up works in this story. Up is working actually in terms of terrain, is working in terms of topography and elevation. Jerusalem's one of the cities built on a peak, and everything else that they've been doing has been kind of down in valleys, generally speaking. And so as you go up to Jerusalem, you're, you're walking up there, but that's also just kind of the way that going to Jerusalem is always mentioned. Because it was on a peak, you would always just sort of say, we're going up to Jerusalem. And so that's what Mark is describing. And so we can kind of, in this sermon in particular, you can just view the setting of it as being a group of people walking on the road on a slight increase or sometimes in a pretty steep incline on their way to Jerusalem. And some are amazed and the larger crowds are afraid because Jesus has been attacking where they're going. And as so they're making their way up to Jerusalem, there's something brewing. You know it. It's gonna happen. And every gospel story or every gospel author tells the story the same way. They usually take a lot of time to kind of unpack how Jesus reeducated crowds, how he dealt with the poor, and how he reeducated his disciples. Mark's done the exact same thing. And then you get to the triumphal entry, which will approach in a couple weeks. And for the rest of the gospel story on, everything really slows down. Jesus doesn't really take one week and spend much time on it. Mark doesn't spend much time on one week anywhere else except for the last week of Jesus' ministry. Every gospel does that. Mark does it, Matthew, Luke, John. So as we're approaching that, there's this sense of anticipation as they go. And so to prepare them, it says, Jesus takes the 12 again and begins to tell them what was to happen, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, in case you're wondering, this is not the first time that we have heard this, right? This is, in fact, the third time that Jesus has so deliberately unpacked the story of what is going to happen to him. And if you heard a little bit of the backdrop of what Curtis read, we could have gone to other passages in the Old Testament that talk about the triumph of the Messiah, the deliverance that he would bring to the oppressed people of God. But what we read, what Curtis read, was from Isaiah 53, a passage that says, if you want peace, if you want healing, if you want forgiveness... And God can bring it. But the one thing that has to happen first is that somebody has to suffer. In fact, the Old Testament has just been kind of waiting, asking the question, who would bring ultimate triumph through ultimate suffering? Who would bring this God-ordained solution that would be bad for the healer, but great for the healees? And in some sense, when Jesus starts to talk about the fact that I'm the guy, I'm the one that's going to happen to, 
there ought to be a sense that those who followed him, who've been reading passages like Isaiah 53, would be able to remember and would be able to get it. They'd be able to grasp the nature of the gospel. But centuries of oppression have left the people of God with a completely different paradigm. The one who would heal would conquer. The one who would conquer would be their Messiah. And that's the one we're looking for, a mighty one to save, not to suffer. And so every time, the past two times, and now here, that Jesus says, I'm going to come and save, but I'm going to suffer in doing so, it perplexes the disciples. And I wish we could stand back 2,000 years later and say, idiots, why didn't they get it? But like I said, we're idiots too. We're just with them. And the struggle they're about to sort of live out in front of us in this story is the one we walk through every single day of our lives. Doesn't my obedience impress God? Isn't the job for me to figure out how in this small group of people I can be one of the more impressive ones? And I don't know why we do that. But I think we get a clue. I think we get a clue, but let's just look back on what we've been talking about. Remember in Mark, all the way chapter 8, he fed 5,000, then he fed 4,000, then afterward he talked about bread, and we read this. They were confused, and so Jesus said, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? They said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, Mark, in his really frustrating way, doesn't give us every detail, does it? If it was Matthew or Luke, some of the more detail-oriented guys, they might fill in some, some gaps for us. But it's as though Mark presents minimal information and says, the disciples didn't get it. Do you get it? And we're left at times going, Wait, what did I not get? He's like, well, too late. We got to move on. And what he wants to move on to is how little the disciples seem to get it. Because Jesus then said in Mark chapter 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You remember what exactly happened? Yes, you do, because it's written right there. And he said this plainly, and so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Did not go well for Peter, if you remember when we were in chapter 8. Peter teaching the Savior how he's supposed to be saving. It's not a good moment in Peter's life. You would think that would be all that everyone would need. When Jesus publicly says, rejecting this idea puts you in league with Satan, people, you would think the disciples would be like, well, we never want to do that again. But we read in Mark chapter 9, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and they did not want any, he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, here it is, second time, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and at least in some sense of improvement on the disciples' parts, nobody rebukes him this time. But they don't know what to say, so they're silent, and nobody asks them because they are afraid. Pitch number one, strike. Swing and a miss. Pitch number two, strike. Swing and a miss. 
Mark chapter 10, our text for today, pitch number three. Third time Jesus is laying this up for them. And what is about to happen? Here's what's about to happen. The next thing Mark tells us after Jesus for the third time says, my ministry will lead to my suffering for your good, my my being crippled so you can be healed. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and say to him, teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Spoiler, you're going to hear that question again next week. And everything wrong, we are going to hear about how to answer that question. What do you want me to do for you? We're going to hear everything wrong this week. You're going to hear everything right next week. So don't be discouraged. Mark does give us these really discouraging moments. And this is one of them. But... Part two comes, what do you want me to do for you, James and John? Mm, Not so good. Next week, you're going to hear the right answer, though. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, strike three. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. It's us. We've come and gathered around the public proclamation that Jesus died for us and that his grace comes freely to us. And you are worried today about how you look and how you will be perceived in this church. Doesn't that bother you? That Jesus has come and said, you need everything from me and I'm here to give it all to you freely. And then we're worried about where we rank. We're James and we're John. And I think the reason that we don't ever, ever, ever seem to get rid of this dilemma inside us is partially because I don't think we ever, ever, ever fully grasp the great love of God and the free grace of God. Because I think if we did, the proportion to which we get the gospel is the proportion to which we reject this tendency inside of us. So I think we can say James and John didn't quite get it. And if we want to not imitate their same error, if we want to ask, why aren't we getting rid of this? I want to just look at this story one more time and just kind of see three reasons because the story plays out a little bit more from where uh, Curtis dropped off. First reason I think we're not quite getting rid of this is because we've inverted this imagery of suffering. Verse 38, Jesus begins to unpack the imagery a little bit better for them. And he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Now, I've quoted a few guys up to this point with some commentaries that I really enjoyed, and I just have to give you a fair warning. I'm going to be quoting Michael Card all the time from now on because I just bought a new commentary. I love, I absolutely love the way he has unpacked some, and I've, I've read back some stuff we've already looked at, and I thought, oh, boy, I really wish I had had this before. So just fair warning you're going to get sick of Michael Card. Well, you won't. You're going to hear a lot of Michael Card. I really try not to give you stuff that you're going to get sick of, but listen to this first nugget, all right? Here's Michael Card on this request. 
their request to sit at his right and left hand in his glory. In ancient culture, the seat at someone's right was reserved as a position of honor. The left-hand seat was for an intimate friend. At the least, this is grotesquely inappropriate. At most, it's a horrid power play. But Jesus knows who will someday be at his right and left hand outside the walls of Jerusalem. Two thieves hanging on a cross. You don't know what you're asking, he says over his shoulder as he walks up the steep hill. In his value system, glory is a result of enduring suffering. And if he could sum up this message, I think it would be in that sentence. In his value system, glory is a result of enduring suffering. And Jesus asks if they can drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism. And with thrones still blinding their eyes, they respond, we are able. You know, this doesn't all come out of Scripture. But from the best we can kind of understand things, James and John actually were more right than they knew when they said we're able. James is quite possibly the first martyr, and John, most likely of the disciples, the last. They're the bookends of what it means to follow Jesus. They're the ones who are going to actually suffer in a way they don't realize they are saying. And Jesus is hearing their request, and you just have to think of what it means for him to know more than he can reveal or to reveal more than they can grasp, and to feel that gap his entire life. You don't know what you're asking of me. It's going to happen. But this cup, an Old Testament metaphor, often referring to judgment, and this baptism, which we've taken to be kind of a, a, a nice sign in the Christian church, but... Romans 6 tells us, and even just the, the morphology of the word tells us, it's, it's a picture of something being sucked down into the depths. It's a picture of death. Are you able to endure judgment the way I will? Oh, we're able. Yeah, I, I don't think we're thinking of the word cup the same way. Are you able to be baptized the way I am? They're thinking cup. Oh, yeah. I'm able to sit with you in glory and sit around the table and enjoy the cup of fellowship. Not the cup I'm talking about. Are you able to be initiated into one of my followers? This baptism rite of being sort of elevated out of where you are and brought to another level. Oh, I sure am. Yes, but glory is a result of enduring suffering. Why is it that we don't grasp the gospel and we're so worried about our position and our relative stance among other believers? It's because we have inverted this imagery of suffering. Are you able? And they say, yes, we are. Second reason begins in verse 39. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, verse 41 is going to kind of tell us what's going on with the disciples. But let me just give you a little hint at it. They're furious. They are livid. Remember, when you walk in, you're hiking. Guys were just hiking out this last Wednesday. And I'm going to guess, though I didn't join them, I'm going to guess that this was not a cluster of men all huddled together, making their way through the woods so that everybody was with arms reach and everybody's elbows were touching so that we were moving as a huddle through the woods. Everybody okay? Yep, we're hiking together. Yes, we are. Left, right, left, right. That's not the way hikes work. There were some up front. There were some in the middle. There was not really one conversation probably happening on Thursday. There were probably multiple conversations. Why? Because a group hikes that way. But what we hear from Mark is that there's kind of two groups that are developing. Another in verse 41 of the 10, sitting back, watching, overhearing, and stewing. They are furious that this is happening. The reason they are furious is not that they would never do such a thing. It's that the others did it first. What they're furious about is the fact that Jesus is hearing from them what each of them would have wanted to get from Jesus themselves anyway. Jesus says this, you will drink the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with. But this left and right hand stuff, you're asking more than you know. It's not even mine to give. And I think it's easy for us to see in James and John something that we detest. Just like it's easy for you to see other people in this church who get recognized for things, and it really bothers you. Because you want the recognition. One of the things that happened when I was at the pastor's college, this one-year seminary program that I went to, a long while ago. And I'm not sure if they still do it, but one of the things they did, I can't really understand in hindsight if it was brilliant or twisted, or if it was just brilliantly twisted or twistedly brilliant. I can't quite make sense of it. But it was effective in my case, and it was that at the end of the year, they gave out awards. There were less than 20 of us, and they gave out three awards, so the odds weren't strong I was going to get one. And if you would have seen me and, you know, my relative position with everybody else, you would have recognized there's no way Darren's getting the academic award. That was pretty obvious in the first week. That's not going to happen. Darren's not making that. The leadership award was one that, you know, uh, that sounds pretty good, but uh, I don't know. I'm probably not going to be a leader. I'm not going to be leading this group of leaders, to be sure. It's the chief leader that would get the leadership award, to be pretty clear. But there was this other one called the service award. The Servant Award. And I wanted that. I didn't know I wanted it. 
until we were doing something once, and I, everybody had to do stuff as, as students there because we were serving at a church, and that church always needed help. And hey, seminary students, free labor, here we go. So they had an event every Tuesday, and my job was to help rally workers to help set up like 40 tables in this big gymnasium. And so I had to kind of, you know, get us going and, and get us moving. And at one point, a friend came and goes, wow, I really appreciate the way you're doing this. You know, does this see God's grace at work in your life? Well, yes, of course you do, you know. He's like, you know, I, you keep this up, man. I think you're in the running for the servant award. See, twistedly brilliant, brilliantly twisted. Why would they give the dumb award if you're at seminary trying to reject the tendency to stand out for serving, right? It's like, it's like screw tape letters. Do you see what has happened to your man? He's become humble. Now all you need to do is point it out to him, and you'll defeat that humility. How weird is it that Jesus takes one of the lowest positions and says, that's what you ought to do in life. You ought to serve. And 2,000 years later, we turned it into an award. And I wanted it so badly. I didn't get it, just so you know. Okay. Not really. Because the guy who got it, he didn't deserve it. (laughs) I mean, if anybody would measure my service versus his service. And uh, the guy who got the leadership award, he was a good guy, actually. He was a good friend of mine. The the academic, I mean, everybody knew who that was going to be. He's a teacher's pet, you know what I mean? (laughs) That service award was mine, I'll tell you. And I justified my outrage at him getting it. And I'm just one of the ten. And there was nothing different that happened to me. It wasn't as though there was some recipe for drawing out, you know, stuff in my heart. Because for ten years before that, when I was sitting in church, and my pastor, who used to, you know, we would, uh, you know, a number of us out there, and there would be times he'd be saying something. He'd say, you know, I see this at work in one of you out here. And I want to tell a little bit of the story. You know what I'd be doing? Oh, please say me, please say me, please say me. That's all I need. I just need you to point out that Darren's the one who's doing this. And everybody go, oh, that's right, very good. How could he have missed you? And I'm like, I know. I don't know why that's in me. And look, if this is nothing more than my confession time, then all right, sorry. It's just what Jesus does next is he doesn't deal with the fact that this request in 39 and 40 just belongs to James and to John. He deals with the fact that we justify our outrage at seeing this kind of energy inside of other people. And the reason that we justify the outrage is because we don't want to question the outrage. We don't want to ask why we're angry. We just want to justify it. And we want to sort of rally other people to it. We want to point out other people in here who seem to be really perplexed like James and John are. But that's not the way Jesus deals with that. You see, we don't get the gospel more by figuring out why we're more worthy of it than the other people are. We grasp the gospel more by recognizing day in and day out through our deeds and others and how others affect our hearts, how much we're desperately in need of the grace of God. And so though we justify our outrage at others, what Jesus does in verse 41, it says, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant in James and John, and Jesus called them to him. 
and said to them, them the twelve, not them the two. First time Peter does this, publicly says it, Jesus takes the eleven, looks at Peter, and basically says, Satan's work on display. 101, let's, let's not do this, huh? But in this case, Jesus doesn't take James and John, put them out there, step back with the ten and say, guys, what's wrong with these people? We should all be indignant, right? No, he gathers all twelve before him and says, I need to tell all of you something. Because James and John, what you said out loud, the rest of you, what you wanted in your heart, your, your silent rage, <coughs> excuse me, just, just a pause. Just, just struggle for a second over what's going to happen next because it's a mystery. Jesus brings them all and says, you've imitated the priorities of the powerful in your day. You have been, with the words we used at the beginning of this service, you have been lied to all your life. He says, you know, you know the rich, you know the popular and the powerful. You know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. You know that Roman soldier who was giving you a hard time last week? He was just doing what was done to him. Because that's the whole Roman system. You know those rich folks who've been taking advantage of you your whole life? They're just doing and imitating the system that they were indoctrinated in. They're just doing to you what's been done to them. Because the rich get rich off of those who aren't as rich as them. The powerful feel more powerful the less they can, or the more they can push other people down. <coughs> and Jesus says, no. No. And if the Holy Spirit were to try and grab our attention right now and say, have you related to any of this? Is this just Darren up there talking about his internal ambitions? Or is, can you feel it a little bit? Is there a sense that you're angry with the way that this world is structured and yet you want to do and get what the world has right in front of you? Is there some sense that, that you feel this pull? Then verse 43, we all have to hear right now him looking at us and saying, not you, Anymore. It shall not be so at Trinity Church. It shall not be so in our family. It will not be so in my friend group. This is not the way we will live anymore. Outraged at the flaws of others, trying to find power so I can push other people down. I'm not going to lord over others. I'm not going to imitate the priorities of power anymore. I'm not going to justify my sense of outrage whenever I see weakness of others. And I'm not going to take the paradigms Jesus put forward where service leads to greatness and figure out that what matters the most right now is how I get viewed as great. I'm going to just, no. No. But how? <laughs> how no? 
If it's so much a part of what we do and the way we live and the way that we think, sometimes it can feel, right, like the math teacher who takes your homework and just says, wrong, try again. I guess they got it wrong, but I don't know what to do so as not to get it wrong again. Don't just correct me, teach me. Don't just instruct me on where I was wrong. Instruct me on how to be right. The question, if this is so much a part of us, if you've been coming and we're just always pressing back about this idea that we have to impress God and impress others. We have to put ourselves forward so that we can be great. If we always feel that and we always have to push against that, how do we do it? Well, Jesus isn't a bad math teacher. He doesn't just stop at verse 43 and say, no, it shall not be this way among you. He he gets us to ask two questions. The first is, will we explore Jesus' mission? And that comes in verse 45. But here's 43, 44, and 45. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's the first question. It comes from verse 45. Will you spend the rest of your days exploring, appreciating, studying, basking in the mission of Jesus? Because Jesus did not come to the earth looking for the impressive and the powerful to build up his team. The incarnation was not about Jesus sort of trying to figure out draft day, sending out his scouts and going, who's the best? Who's the brightest? Who can I get on my team? Because my kingdom is so deficient, I really need some good people. Jesus didn't come to grasp and to find servants. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he came not to get, but to give. And ultimately not to give partially, but to give everything. He came not as a king, he came as a peasant. He came not as a Pharisee, but as a rogue preacher hated by the powerful and by the elite. He came especially as he gathered all of his followers to press their allegiance, so much so that at one point everybody seemed to run away and he's left with the 12. And he said, you guys go in too? And the best that they could give, in this case from Peter, was, well, yeah, we would if there was anywhere else to go, frankly. If we just got to be honest, what you're telling us right now, that following you is going to lead to just this backwards way of thinking. If we really had anybody else who could give us something better, we'd probably go there. But where else will, will we go? You're the one who seems to have the words of eternal life. That's what it looked like for Jesus to come to the earth. Not to gain popularity at all costs, and not to gain servants at all costs, but to serve and to give at all costs. If you want to purge out of your psyche how you're going to get and be served, how you're going to become more successful, how you are going to be more known, how you're going to get the service award of Trinity Church, 
If you want to get rid of that, just spend the rest of your days studying Jesus. Start every day opening up and reading about Jesus. Will we explore his mission? And then the second question comes from 43 and 44. Will we follow his example? Because he ends with his example. And he says, this is why the Son of Man has come. The Son of Man has come to give and to serve. The Son of Man has come, as he said in the very beginning, to serve in such a way that would lead to his rejection and his flogging and his death. Now, will you follow? Will you serve if it means that in this life you're treated like a servant? Will you give even if it means that you have to pay a cost for your giving? Because Jesus said that's what it means in verse 43, to be great. Whoever wants to be great needs to serve all of you. And then he doubles down on it in verse 44. And not just a servant, but a slave. Now over the next year, what we're going to do is we're going to create the Slave Award at Trinity Church. We're not going to do that. But you want us to do that, at least a little bit. Guys, we've heard it for three chapters now. The Mark is going to take a turn. This is kind of the last of the bits of instruction that we get. Jesus asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? He's going to ask that question again to someone who answers it far better than James and John do. But that's going to mark the end. After that, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And the story of the last week of his life is what we're going to be in from basically this fall through Easter. We're going to take a few breaks around Christmas time. We're going to take our time again in Psalms the way that we do in January. But we're going to be with Mark on the slow progression to the cross and what it looks like for Jesus to actually enter into this realm of power in Jerusalem. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we really do want to ask ourselves some questions. Maybe what you'd want to do over this last week is reread Mark 8, 9, and 10. That's really where Jesus has turned this whole paradigm upside down. And ask, what does this reveal about what Jesus has come to do for me? And am I willing to walk this way, even if it leads to my having to serve others and not get credit for it? Even if other people treat me kind of like they're slaves. Even if it ultimately means that I suffer, am I willing to do this Because I see that in Jesus' life, this is the way he accomplished his great work. And I just want him to do something great in my day. Take a little time. Reread these three chapters and ask those questions. Will I just take my days exploring Jesus' mission and am I willing to follow his example? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in a moment... As we're singing and we take communion together, that what we'll be commemorating is the way that Jesus conquered by suffering. I thank you that these songs we're going to sing are going to lift up Jesus, are going to highlight the way that he conquered and the way that he saved through his suffering. 
And yet, Lord, I pray that you would protect us. Protect us as a church, Lord, from thinking that somehow the way that we are going to uh, kind of advance the kingdom is by being great here and now, rather than by serving and taking up the place of being last. Father, I pray for something I can't envision. And that's who you're going to transform us into. We know your word never gets preached, never gets proclaimed, never goes out and doesn't do what it was supposed to do. And we thank you that we've been hearing a very similar message for a number of weeks now. That the kingdom of God is built differently than the kingdoms of this world and that for us to take our place in your kingdom, we have to operate differently. So Father, I pray, transform us. And once again, I pray with an eye to who we'll be in a year. Lord, may we enjoy Jesus more and when we strive to imitate him simply for the joy of being able to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. As we stand...